Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 22. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, Richard Ryerson here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. If you're like me, you like to read, but you have trouble finding the time to do it, well, Audible.com is the solution. they got over 100,000 titles to choose from, all the popular books, all the books you can even think of. You can download them to your iPhone, your Android, your Kindle, any MP3 player that you have, and you can get caught up in all your reading. they got a special offer, offer just for Dose of Leadership listeners. You can go to my website, doseofleadership.com slash audible. You can also click on a couple of banners that I got on my website, and it'll take you to their free offering where you can download a free audiobook and get you a free 30-day trial with no commitment. You can check out all their services. Again, go to my website. Go to doseofleadership.com slash audible or go to my website and look, click on any of the banners and links that you see with Audible. And again, download your free ebook today. Again, thanks for all your support and enjoy your interview. Well, it's my pleasure to have on the phone this morning Russell Bishop. Russell started five successful companies and he's consulted the leadership teams all around the world. He's become a recognized expert in personal and in organization transformation, and he's helped individuals and companies create unparalleled success. He's one of the early pioneers in the field of large group personal development. He created Insight Seminars in 1978, and he continues to serve on the Board of Trustees. And to date, well over 1 million people in 34 countries have graduated from Insight. In 2000, Russell started Bishop & Bishop, a business consulting firm which specializes in performance acceleration, helping companies implement business strategies and achieve dynamic performance improvement. He's got, his clients include Fortune 500 companies in, in all fields, including aerospace, pharmaceuticals, biotech, IT, telecommunications, and energy. And he has extensive international experience all throughout the world, England, France, Germany, Spain, Australia, Indonesia, Thailand, the Philippines, the Hong Kong, just to name a few, as well as all across North and South America. In addition to his consulting practice, he's an author. He serves as the editorial director for the Huffington Post GPS for the Soul a weekly blog that's read by tens of thousands of readers and focuses on improving the quality of life at every level. He's also the author of a great book called Workarounds at Work, How to Conquer Anything that Stands in Your Way at Work. Russell, quite a bio. Good morning. How are you today? Well, that was quite the mouthful of introduction. Thank you. I'm doing just great. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. And um, guys, you've, you've, you've been around a long time. You're good friends with David Allen. You guys have, have consulted. You've been with been so many high-level um businesses conquering problems and, and you write about one of the ones that's really near and dear to my heart i'm in the um right now work at a company that's in flight test aeronautical and you talk about integrated and legacy processes and bureaucracies and silos everything you write about in your work in your book workaround yeah, boy i live and breathe it so t- tell me a little bit about workarounds and what prompted you to write it well it's really kind of interesting um how this book came about uh it's what I call my uh, my first accidental book. And what I mean by that is I have been writing a, a regular column uh, for the Huffington Post for several years, and as it turns out, the publisher of McGraw-Hill had been a regular follower. And out of the clear blue of the western sky, as they say, uh, the phone rang one day, and 
he identified himself as the publisher and said, would you be interested in writing a book for us? And how it took my uh, breath away from him because <laughs> no one had asked that question before. Right. And I said, well, I suppose, what, what did you have in mind? And Nick had the title already called Workarounds the Work. And uh, when I inquired, what they had in mind was uh, almost like a sneaky, a book on how to be sneaky, uh-huh. uh, how to, you know, sort of... Uh, go behind people's back and things like that. And I said, well, I'm not sure I want to write that book, but I love the notion of workarounds because there's always things in the way. And how do you get them moving when they get stuck? And so uh, we agreed to create the book, and uh, they wanted me to write it in two weeks. Two weeks? Yes, they literally wanted it in two weeks. I said, well, how about six? I I literally wrote the book in six weeks. Oh, that's amazing. Well, yeah, it is, and in, in, uh, especially when I look back and go, how the heck did I do that? But the nice thing about the book is that it's all um, real-life stories and anecdotes from the trenches. So it's not one of those management theory books. Yeah, right. This is a management practice book, I call it. Yeah, you know, that's what the book is so great. It, it does tackle a, a, a neglected arena in that it... Um you know, so often and everywhere I've worked in the corporate environment the last 11 years, you know, we're always going to the off-sites, the retreats, we're trying to come up with new processes. And it's all with good intentions and everybody means well, but somehow we always seem to get stuck after it's over, after the retreat's over, after the off-sites over. It still kind of goes back to that same old, you know, we're staring at our toes and going, what do we do now? And, yep. and um, so talk a little bit about that. I mean, is that what you've experienced when you've... Um, when when you dealt with these companies, is, am I speaking? Or what I experienced is that what you've seen seen as well? Sorry, I got a call coming in here. My apologies for that. But but is that what you've seen too? Well, I think one of the um, uh, big challenges out there um, is that especially as organizations uh, grow past the entrepreneur and begin to bring in uh, professional management, right. they almost always run into um, uh, an familiar pattern, and if something is not working, we need a new strategy, or something is not working, we need a new process. And uh, these days, I kind of cut to the chase with clients early on and say, um, let me kind of frame it this way for you. Strategies don't work. Right. And sort of the deer in the headlights phenomenon shows up, and I say, well, no, people work strategies. Right. Um, and then in the same breath, I say, and processes don't work. People work processes. So if you've got a performance issue someplace and you change strategies or you change processes, uh, for the people in the trenches, they usually just roll their eyes and go, oh, my God, because they were never on board with the previous one. That's so right. part of the challenge is how do you communicate where you're going, what's it going to take to get there, and then uh, let your people actually contribute, surprise, surprise, to the thinking about how it's going to work. Not all organizations want to um, engage me at that point uh, because they're used to changing strategies as often as they change their underwear. But <laughs> so, if, you're, if you're willing to go, it's a, it's a great game. Well, I think that, you know, especially for the folks, and you know, including myself and maybe a lot of the listeners out there, we're right there in the middle. Maybe we're an upper level management, but we're definitely not in the C level office. Maybe some of us are. 
but it seems like a lot of these strategy books or these these offsites they tend to focus on the C level. You know, what do they do as the leader? Well, we all know that a lot of the real leadership and a lot happens from the middle and below. What advice do you have for someone like myself or those other kind of upper level to mid level managers or maybe even the supervisors and below? What do you do when you're wrapped up in a big bureaucratic organization? You know what needs to be done, but maybe it doesn't seem like um, the leadership seems to see the same thing that you need to do. Is what what can we do? It's because it seems very frustrating. It's like what you know, what do we do? How do we lead from the middle? Well, I think that's a, a absolutely superb question, um, especially in that as we get bigger in the organization, so that's not the only chance we have. Uh, so what I've kind of come up with is a, a, a twist on something I learned doing a consulting assignment with the uh, Secretary of the Navy oh, many, many years ago, and they were talking about... Uh, how the Navy views strategy, and and this is something that um, Stephen Covey put in one of his books. He just kind of failed to give the attribution to the Navy for it. But if you imagine a sheet of paper, <clears throat> just a blank sheet, and you said that's the entire universe in which I work, my my job, my customers, my service uh, staff, the whole thing, and you wrote the word control in the middle of it put a circle around it, we'd say, okay, so that represents the amount of your whole job, career, employment, universe around which you have control. I like to joke it's not that big. We just have to write it that big so you can still read it. Um, but then if you draw a concentric circle around that one that's right in the center, uh, so obviously it's larger, and inside there you write the word concern. And here we'd say, well, that's an area I'm concerned about, but I don't have control. But then we also write inside that circle the word influence. And then the whole rest of the page is what the Navy would simply call the environment. And you cannot change the environment. You can't influence it. You certainly can't control it. But what you can do, and so we also write then on this wider part of the page, the word respond. And in any given situation, we can control what we can, influence what we can, and respond to the rest. You'll never respond well if you haven't controlled what you can, and then influence what you can. So, long setup to your question about, so how do you lead from the middle? Well, every time an issue arises, what I like to suggest that people do is the very first thing that they explore in their mind is, what difference could I make all on my own? Mm. The no one's permission except my own. That's the control piece. Yeah, and I don't Once think... Once you've got that clear, then you can say, so now what difference could I make if other people were on board? Ooh, and that's the influence piece. So if I'm reporting to you, um, the last thing you need is someone who shows up and whines. Oh, those people over there in procurement, they just don't get it. <laughs> But if instead I say, hey, you know, we got a problem with some materials acquisition, uh, uh, seems like procurement may have some challenges, here's what I've been able to do to make this thing move a little better. Here's what I can imagine we could do if we had others on board. Now I find like a problem solver instead of a problem whiner. Yeah. That's my primary suggestion. I love that, that you brought that up. I mean, I think that 
that, and I, I want to emphasize that point again. I think too often, and I know when I've had people working for me, when I've been in those leadership positions, the difference it makes when someone comes to me like you just presented there, you know, before you even came and, and saw me, and vice versa, when I reported up to my superiors, I did everything I could. What can I control? What can I take ownership? What can I be accountable for? And I think that is so powerful and, and where so many people miss the boat. And if they could just, like you said, focus on what can I control and be accountable for at my level and do everything you can, then determine what you can influence and then go talk to your supervisor. Wow, you'd be amazed at how much leadership you're exuding throughout the organization, right? It is huge. And um, I have a, a, a chapter in the book where I talk about uh, the power of complaints and what mm. people do with that and so on and so forth. Um, but it was in a, an interview uh, with um, one of the big um, Bloomberg stations, and the guy said, oh, so what you're really talking about is building contribution capital. And I kind of went, wow, what a great insight. Yeah. When, when someone complains, uh, uh, and this really changed my whole thinking about this when, when this guy framed it that, that elegantly for me. When someone complains, there's two really positive things about that complaint, which are not immediately obvious. The first of which is, hey, they cared enough to say something. Right. And before that, they actually were aware enough to notice. So if I come to you, Richard, and I've got a complaint, and now you're working on the notion of how do you build contribution capital in the organization, mm-hmm. now what you get to do is use those same things, control influence, and say, hey, Russell, hey, thanks for noticing. That's great. Um, and by the way, what do you think you could do about that? What difference could you make all on your own? What difference could you make if others were on board? And so you get to change complaints into contribution, and the more contribution thinking there is in the organization, that's actually capital that you can invest and grow your business with. No, I really like that. You know, I've never looked at it that way. You're right. Someone coming in and complaining, it, there there is a blessing and an opportunity there. You're right. At least they did recognize, and they had the, the courage to come and say something about it. And, that, mm-hmm. and as a leader, if I can just flip it around, like you said, and turn that kind of whining into a leadership opportunity for them, well, that's great. I've never looked at it that way. Yeah, it was a, a lovely spin. It's something in the personal growth world I've always known is that uh, a complaint is a sign of something somebody prefers, but they're not willing to risk going after it. Right. But the way this guy framed it is that it's an actual source of potential contribution to the organization, that was just a powerful insight. That is. I never heard that. That is great. Contribution capital. I like that. Yeah. You know, one thing on that same vein that I love, my favorite chapter in your book is the one, chapter nine, the death by decision, stop deciding and start choosing. <laughs> and I am... Um, you know, I've always been a big 75% solution guy. I got that from the Marine Corps, from the military, you know, because you, they're always, we're talking about, look, you got to just make a decision and go and keep the ball moving forward. And it all sounds good, but then you wrote about, and I, I never looked at it that way. I'll let you kind of hit some of the high points, but talk about that chapter because I, that's something I've never heard of in that frame. And, and I love how you framed, stop deciding instead start choosing. Can you talk about that chapter? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I think the the first thing I would say is that um, 
gosh, back in the late 70s, early 80s, I got to do some work with Intel as it was uh, on the words of on the verge of becoming Intel Inside. Right. Andy Grove, who was running the company, had a, uh, and he wrote a great book called High Output Management. I think he published it around 85 or 86, something like that. Um, and in that book, he talked about a management philosophy which was all over Intel, and he, I think, basically called it Decide, Do, Fix. And what he was saying is pretty much like Marine Corps philosophy. You ain't going to get it perfect, but don't worry about what I call being perfectionally correct, yeah. yeah, just get it directionally correct. Right. So once you get the thing moving, it's pretty much like your car. The steering wheel is useless if you're sitting still. Right. To move, now you can make the micro adjustments to keep you on the road, allow you to dodge roadblocks, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of the first thing. It's not about perfection, it's about direction. Yes. Love that. And then when you think about the word decide, if, if the listeners just wrote the word on a piece of paper, decide, and you notice that there's two pieces in there, D-E and then C-I-D-E, and I was like the kid people, what other words do you know that end in C-I-D-E? <laughs> right. And so then you're going to come up with suicide, homicide, matricide, patricide, fratricide, genocide, I mean insecticide, pesticide. <laughs> so the root word is a Latin word, insidia, which means to either kill or to cut out, as in violently cut out. And the word de means of. So the word decide literally means to kill of or from available choices. And that's what a lot of management decision looks like. What's wrong with this? What's wrong with that? See, I told you we couldn't do anything. Um, and I like to say, well, let's, let's take the word decide and put it on the burner, and instead substitute the word choose. And the word choose or choice implies a direction, so again, directionally correct, not perfectionally correct. And now what you're doing is you're choosing toward an outcome, right? not just an action. And when people make decisions, they usually get wedded to their action more than they get to the outcome because they need to be right. Andy Grove couldn't have cared less about being right. He wanted to get to the outcome whatever it took to, to keep making the micro changes or macro changes. He built an entire silicon plant in Southeast Asia, not knowing what was going to go inside of it because the technology moved too fast. So he said, we're not going to worry about getting it right. We're just going to get it up. <laughs> right. Right. Well, that's well, the kind of stuff. Well, and I think that you hit on a couple points there, plain devil's advocate. You know, someone would say, well, look, if you're not firm in your decisions and you just always go through choices – you know, it's just this big consensus and everything's kind of wishy-washy, nothing ever gets done. But I think what you, the key is what you said in there is like, look, first and foremost, before you even go through the act of coming up with choices and, and picking a choice, you have to be clear on what is your intent, right? What is the overall intent, what we're trying to accomplish? Is that is that the key? Is Well, absolutely. Um, it's my favorite little throwaway line is if you don't know where you're going, any road will do. Right. So getting clear, and, and getting clear about where you're going, a lot of organizations can specify goals, but goals are not the goal, uh, which may sound like what? Uh, very rarely are you trying to achieve the goal as much as you're trying to fulfill a purpose. Yes. And getting clear about the purpose 
means that you, you could set a goal, you could put a project plan, an action plan in place, and, you know, three minutes in, you find out, uh-oh, uh, didn't expect this. And all of a sudden, you've got to make a change, a workaround, a make a new choice. You didn't change the purpose, but you may have had to change some part of the objective or the process of getting there. That keeps people and organizations fresh, dynamic. You hear the words all the time, we're fast, we're flexible, we're nimble. Well, what does that mean? It means you keep your eye on the purpose and you don't get too stuck in the process. Yeah, that rings true to me, you know, coming from the Marine Corps side that was always about, they drummed from the leadership side, what is the commander's intent? It's always the intent. And if you're going to issue an order or direction as the leader, you just focus on the intent. Leave the, you know, leave leave the how up to them. And if you always have that intent in your mind or the purpose as you're stating it, you give your team so much flexibility, so much creativity on how to get that accomplished, right? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. One of the things I like to see in an organization when I'm doing a new assignment is I ask them to show me a sampling of uh, job descriptions at different levels in the organization. And uh, people think I'm trying to understand what they do, and I'm not. I'm trying to understand how they think. And here's what I'm pointing towards. When I see uh, job descriptions that say, does this, does that, does the other thing, I know we're in trouble. When I see a job description that says, responsible for producing X, responsible for achieving Y, I know we got something good we can work with. The job description that tells somebody what to do uh, is basically one that said, uh, we need your body, but don't bring your brain. Right. When you tell me here's the result we're trying to accomplish, now you've asked me to actually become accountable, and you've asked me to own the outcome, and you've asked me to think creatively. That's a whole lot more refreshing environment in which to work. Absolutely. I think that well, – t- tell me from your experience. You've seen so many companies, and one, and one thing that I've seen in my 11 years, this whole idea of the notion between accountability and responsibility. I am always argue that you know sometimes I see people using those two phrases, those ter- two terms simultaneously meaning the same thing, but I argue that they are very subtly different but very powerfully different. You know, you, you only, I kind of equate it to flying an aircraft. You know, I'm a pilot, obviously. And we look at it, you know, there's so much leadership responsibility in a multi-crew aircraft. You know, when I flew KC-130s in the Marine Corps, you know, I had a navigator, a loadmaster, a, f- a flight engineer, a co-pilot, and everybody had a certain leadership functional responsibility. But there was only, But there was only one person that was accountable, and that was the aircraft commander, the one that signed for the airplane the person sitting in the left seat. And so in other words, if the navigator failed in their functional responsibility, i.e. the GPS failed, the internal navigation unit failed, and he's cell-shotting or using a sextant to get me to Hawaii, and he fails in that responsibility, who's accountable, the navigator or the aircraft commander? And it's the aircraft commander. And that's that's a topic that I find just in the short time I've been in the corporate arena, that a lot of people still don't understand that. They still want to put the accountability on the navigator. What's your thoughts on that? How, what do you see in, 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 is it ringing true? Do you see that same problem in corporate America? 
all over the place. Um, I think one of the fundamental problems with accountability uh, and responsibility, uh, and, and this is said somewhat cheekily, is people don't know what the words mean. And what I mean by that is um, responsibility. <laughs> I first learned this as a budding gestalt psychologist 40-some years ago. Responsibility is a word that means having the ability to respond. doesn't mean duty, blame, guilt, fault. It just means you have the ability to respond. So in, in trying to get to any outcome, there's also an available set of choices or responses, and then there's varying capability uh, that I may have. So I may see three or four ways to get someplace, but I also have to then do a proper assessment. Do I have the skill or capability to execute one more than another? And I may be better off taking the less efficient route because that one I know how to execute. Or maybe it's like, well, you know, that other one I better learn, so now you have a learning question. So there's a whole lot of things you have to think about in terms of assessing available responses and capabilities to get there. Accountability, though, means willingness to own the outcome. And someone owns the outcome, which then means leadership's job is to set direction, clarify the purpose and outcome, and then help identify and remove roadblocks. So your nav is going to follow a flight plan, but it's just not his job to make up which flight plan you're you're going to use today. Right. So you get to to play a lot there. The difference between direction and execution. Yeah, and I think people if people understand the difference between the two, especially from the leadership aspect. If you are willing to have the moral courage to accept the outcomes, like you said, the success and the failure, particularly the failure of somebody else's failure. That's the key to me. If you're gonna dip your foot in the leadership pool, you have to understand the difference between those two. In fact, you can't even call yourself a leader, in my opinion, if you don't understand the difference and if you're not willing to accept the accountability of your team's failures, correct? Yep. Yeah, and you, you talk about accountability in your book. I love I love what you wrote there, too. One thing I wanna back up, it just hit me, it, it, something struck me when you talked about, we were talking a little bit about how can you lead from the middle? One thing I found myself doing early on in my corporate career is um, easily getting overwhelmed with the processes, the, the full email, I mean, everything that everybody lives, right? You're just like, what what do we do next? And I was guilty early on of, well, I've got this, you know, I, w- I was so wrapped up in my to-do list and I felt so good of, you know, checking a little box or marking a line through that to-do item. But what I found myself doing was, doing those things that really didn't matter a lot, but it felt good to me because I felt I was checking the box off, right? Yep. How do you how do you transform yourself into doing the right things as you talk about in the book? Because it's not about doing your to-do list. It's about doing the right things. And when we're so overwhelmed and inundated with so many things to do, how do we know what's the right thing to do? Well, I think that um, uh, that is an age-old question in organizations, and it shows up uh, often as a symptom of competing or conflicting priorities, especially in organizations that are matrixed. You have many people you have to satisfy, but not many people you control, Um, and so that becomes 
becomes a huge question. And what I like to suggest to people, and, and I was teasing David about this, David Allen. Um, for those who don't know, David wrote a great book called Getting Things Done, um, sold a couple of million copies around the world in yeah. 40-some languages. Pretty popular book. Great book. Um, but one of the things I've teased David about from time to time is that um, we got the idea wrong. Uh, it's not about getting things done. It's about getting the right things done. Right. Because you can spend all day getting a whole lot of stuff done that don't matter. Yep. So now the question that you're asking is this, how do you make that distinctive choice between stuff I could get done and stuff that matters if I get it done? And I think I've uh, boiled that down to just two questions that I like to keep in front of me all day, every day, whether I'm processing an email, deciding to join a conference call, whatever it might be. And those two questions are, what value shows up if I get this done? And the second question is, what risk do I bear if I don't? Mm. And if you can just keep yourself focused on value if accomplished, risk if not, uh, I think you'll be way ahead of most people in terms of making good strategic choices about what matters. I like that. And if you don't know, so I go, uh, hey, Richard, hey, boss, I've been looking over my weekly review and I got all these things on my plate and some of them conflict. Here's what I think the value-risk equation is, but I may have that wrong. So now we have the notion of uh, the flight commander versus the nav again. I'm asking, did I get this right? Yeah. And you can help adjust my thinking if I didn't. Yeah, I like that. I like that. So how, how, um, how's the writing with Huffington Post coming? I just came across your blog. Sorry, but you got some great articles on there. How, how's that coming? Well, I'm uh, Ariane is someone I've known for many years, and uh, I just spent the last year and a half in New York helping her put together several new sections of the Huffington Post, and uh, that assignment has just come to a close. And so I'm back on the West Coast after having lived in New York City for a while, uh, but I continue to write for them, and uh, and will continue to do so. I've taken the last three months off as I was relocating, but I'm about to crank it back up again. So it's a great place to contact a heck of a lot of people. They have an amazing fire hose that, that reaches, um, last count I knew, it was over 150 million unique visitors a month come to that site. It's amazing. It's pretty amazing. I've had articles that have reached uh, 80,000 people in the first couple of hours of being published and you know, for a guy writing articles, not news stories. That's pretty amazing. That is amazing. Think of the reach, you know, 80,000 just to, in one day. That's amazing. Yeah, amazing. So where can people find you? Well, my website is my name. It's uh, russellbishop.com, and Russell has two S's and two L's. So just go to russellbishop.com. You'll find my website. You'll also find the archive of all my articles I've published on the Huffington Post as well as a few other blogs um, that I've done over the years as well. Yeah, great stuff. you got a great writing style. I appreciate it. You know, your book is, is awesome. There's so much more we could talk about. I'd hope, I'd, you know, like to bring you back sometime. There's some other areas I'd like to talk about, some other topics. Would you be willing to do that? Oh, that would be great fun. Absolutely. So the book is Workarounds, 
Let me get the title right again. What's it? Say the title again. I was about to pull it up here. Workarounds that work. How to conquer anything that stands in your way at work. Yep. And it's available everywhere. I got it on the iTunes bookstore a couple of days ago, but it's on mm-hmm. Amazon.com. You can get it at Borders and all the all the normal places, right? All the normal outlets, both uh, online and brick and mortar. Well, Russell, it was a true pr- privilege and honor to have you come on the show today. I appreciate you giving us a little bit of dose. And again, I, I'll have you come back because there's so much more I'd like to talk about. I got some notes here I didn't even get, get through, but I like to keep these shows to about 35 minutes. But uh, we'll, uh, we'll do this again soon. Sounds good to me. All right, Russell, thanks. Thank you, Richard. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.